everyone. My name is Colin Casser, aka Ash Adams. I'd like to thank you for tuning in to Ruining Your Childhood, The Pitfalls of Nostalgia. This right here is part two of an interview that I had with Fresh Kills, the Juno-nominated Canadian producer from Toronto. He's a wonderful human being, very intelligent, charismatic, and just very fun to talk to. If you haven't, go back and check out part one of the interview, came out last week. And now we are going to wrap things up and actually finally get to the questions that I had written down to talk to him about. Uh, the first hour was just us catching up and talking about stuff. This time, it's a little bit more focused and then unfocused. And then back to focused and then unfocused again. But that being said, make sure you follow him on all social media platforms at Fresh Kills. And that is fresh spelt normally. Kills only has one L though. Don't look up two L's because I don't know what that is. We don't want to see fresh death. No, he's killing beats. He's not killing people. Uh, don't get it twisted. You can find him on Bandcamp, SoundCloud, FreshKills.com, and all, like I said, all over social media. So please give him a follow. He's a funny human being. Make sure you check out all of his beat battles on the YouTube. And all of his albums are good. He's, he's, he's got some great tunes. So make sure you get in there. Give it a bump. And stay tuned uh, to the end of this episode. Where we are going to give you a preview of Fresh Kill's up and coming project. Occam's Blazer is a seven piece nomad jazz group combining the talents of Christoph Krizzle Mateka on keys and producing. We have Fresh Kills producing and on MPC. Premrock doing some vocals and songwriting. We have Guido Spinucci on alto sax, Julie Scone on percussion, Anthony Rinaldi on baritone sax, Julian Prusci on trumpet. You can find Occam's Blazer on Instagram, Facebook, and on all social media platforms. Their album will be coming out on Fake 4 here in April. That is April 29th, 2022. Go ahead and pre-order that on Bandcamp. You can check it out on vinyl. You can get their single, Prison of Gold, right now. Pre-order the album if you'd like. And like I said, we are going to play that Prison of Gold for you at the end of this here interview. It's a genre-bending experience. I highly recommend you stick around. Thanks for tuning in. All right, we'll get right to it. Here's Fresh Kills. Well, I wanted to ask you though. I got a couple questions for you. Are you from Toronto? Did you grow up in Toronto? Yeah, yeah. I'm downtown kid here too. Downtown, okay. Like, really, like I'm not like from Brampton, repping Toronto. Like I'm, Brampton's a lovely place. Um, but yeah, I'm I'm downtown kid. Yeah. Okay. What did the so, for me, Toronto hip hop. Is, you and Drake, right? Those are like literally the only two people that I know from Toronto, oh, and God. it's. Not yeah. because it, this is out of ignorance because I haven't oh, done too fuck. much digging in Toronto hip hop. Right. And I know that, was it Shad's from Vancouver? Is that right? Or 
Uh, Shad lives out there. He went to school there. He's actually okay. from a small town outside Toronto. He's okay, London, but but he yeah. got famous in in Vancouver, right? And so I remember him, kind of. Not really, but kind of. But he well, he lived in Vancouver, so that was his home okay. base. There for was some time. association. Yeah. Someone yeah. told me that Shad is his Vancouver MC. I remember when I discovered yeah, yeah. it. But point, my point being, you know, between, you know, so my impression on Canadian hip hop, you know, it's Drake, you. Uh, Josh Martinez, Scratch Bastard, uh, Shad, swollen members, swollen members. Um, but that's kind of the extent of it, right? Like, I want to know what when in Toronto, like when you were introduced to hip hop and what it looked like trying to come up in that scene, and if there were like any people like you know under you know old school Toronto artists that you want to like spotlight as like being inspirations for you and stuff. You know, what's interesting is I actually so. When I went, when I went to U, I went to university in Halifax. So Halifax is really where I came up Going with hip hop stuff. And yeah, exactly. And but what's interesting about that is, so um, I was not into hip hop in high school at all. I was a long haired guitar player with my four track and my microphone. Like that's what I was doing. I wasn't sing. I hated singing, but I would do it. But yeah, what kind of music were you into? In oh man, I was rock like, heavy. What was your favorite bands? Yeah, I wanted to be. Oh man, everything from. I mean, I was a big grunge head, right? So like okay. Pearl Jam, obviously. But it was like it was like the it was a large breath. It was like Nine Inch Nails, and Metallica to to Jimi Hendrix and you know Janis Joplin and and, and Led Zeppelin and stuff. Uh, and and everything, a lot of stuff in between. Rage, you know, Against Machine was huge. And but there were these bridges. So I mean, I I was getting into towards the end. I love Beck. Like Beck is one of my all time favorite artists. Um, and Odalay is a fucking hip hop record, really. What well, it is? Um, it literally, it literally totally is. is. I mean, and yo, the Dust Brothers are fucking geniuses. No one talks. People don't talk about the Dust Brothers. One anyway. of the most underrated production teams. Unbelievable, unbelievable. So, that this hip hop stuff sort of bleeding in, but I didn't realize it. Like, I was into Chemical Brothers. I was a big beat fan. So I was into Crystal Method, Chemical Brothers. Aren't the Chemical Brothers? Aren't they the Dust Brothers? No, no. Okay, because I remember someone telling me that back in the day, and no. Someone was like, I think the Chemical Brothers are like the Dust Brothers of the Chemical Brothers hip hop side. Chemical right. Brothers are from Britain. Okay. The Dust Brothers Dust Brothers were from California and they were just like diggers in California. Mm. And they produced uh uh Paul's Boutique as well, right? They had a lot to do with Paul's Boutique and they also they also did mm, what Mbop. Wow. <laughs> they wow. produced Mbop. They are making bank off that probably still. Unbelievable. I bet there's like I bet there's some country that's just like all day just playing <laughs> you know, stuff. the best part about umbob is when you listen to, if you re-listen to it it's the synthetic synthetic substitution break it's like the classic drum break and the guy the little long-haired kid is playing the drums and the whole time i'm going like yo that's melvin bliss bro like you're fronting hard but whatever <laughs> <laughs> i love going back and listening to music that was like from a kid and you're listening to it with like your current ears and you're like like uh mm. in pm dawn or something like that you know like oh yo comes on and you're just like it's so good though his record is mad underrated it's really good same thing you know record yo skilo's album everyone only remembers the one song skilo's album was is fantastic dude fantastic there's i mean the the golden era is a golden era for a reason because like if you listen to any record between those years that has that production it's just dope it just kind of is whatever if you're into that sound you're going to be into those records um, but so the hip hop stuff has been, have been bleeding into what I was listening to, but I wasn't, I didn't, I, I hated rap. I really did not like rap. Someone tried to play me insane in the membrane. I was like, this is ridiculous. I don't give a shit about this. Like, I don't like it. 
So it was really Halifax that transformed me because when I went to Halifax, it was an unbelievable time in music. So, you know, I was watching Buck 65, do this dandy boy, like dandy boy poetry. I watched him like literally jam a, a microphone stand into his balls for a whole half a set and talk in a weird like gay dandy boy voice doing like essentially spoken word over beats and then doing amazing scratches like i was like what the fuck is this i didn't like it mind you i was just like this is crazy like what is this artist and there was a lot of left field artists out there was buck 65 sebi tones 62 became a mentor of mine um I, i helped produce some stuff for josh martinez very early on i remember doing a session in logic 2.3 or something and it was what the hell josh had brought um soul and they had never done a recording everyone was using four tracks so i they came to my studio and i was like i prepared for weeks for this session and i did a session with them and they were like yeah i guess you can record to a computer like and they were all amazed anyway so technology yeah it was like (laughs) young scratch bastard um young um the classified um was out there and stuff and so i got really wrapped up in that scene but for me it was like i was an engine i had the four track mm-hmm. and when my friend showed me that i could like sample drums and like i didn't need a band to like make records that mm-hmm. totally blew my mind and i got into the production of it and it really took a while for me to get into hip-hop but in halifax it was a really interesting scene because it was it was this left field art rap stuff which was nascad which was there's a big art college out there that's an incredible art college of a storied history of amazing artists coming out of there. And so very art- artsy community there, but then on the, that's Halifax. And then on Dartmouth, you had the like dark side of like, like the hood, you know, and you had real heavy street rap stuff happening there. And it was this, and there was a real divide, man. It was a really strange, like you go to shows and there was like, it was a divide. It was like, you know, classified would show up with 18 dudes and they were in, they were called the ground squad and they were all wearing camo just cold grilling motherfuckers the entire night. It was just really weird. And you had this artsy shit going on. It's interesting confluence. And so that completely changed my whole life. And I, I got completely enwrapped in, in that and became, you know, started to produce records and everything else. Coming back to Toronto was tough. It was a weird time. When I came back to Toronto, Toronto is a very strange city in that it is super diverse. Um, but, from a music industry standpoint, very under at the time under definitely underdeveloped, especially in you know urban is a bad word, but especially in now. But back then, you know, urban music, R and B, uh, hip hop, um, very underdeveloped, very like not a lot of industry there, and so it was a strain. It it had a bit of like a there was a lot of clicks. There was a lot of um, like uh, it was sort of confused. Like Card Cardinal. I, I, Cardinal is a good example. Cardinal Fishel, right? Classic, and we go back to this Caribbean issue, right? So he does this album that was very much a Toronto record. I can't remember the name of it. It's got a it's got a soldier's helmet on the front. Um, and it was this very very Caribbean inspired hip hop record, and it was a great record, but it didn't do well, right? And in Canada, like, listen. Canadian people like to talk about like I'm so glad that black music is flourishing in Toronto and in Canada in general but if you look at the Canadian demo, demographic Canadians are predominantly white people predominantly rural and they like their rock music and their country shit and their pop shit that's what it is that's what this country is it's not you know so people want to talk about 
rap and urban music, not urban music, but rap and R&B are marginalized in this country. Well, yes, they're marginalized, but there also just isn't an audience for it. So unless you can cross over, it's this isolated place, right? And Toronto wanted to be New York, and the wannabe thing is terrible. And classically, again, I'm, I'm getting, I'm sorry I'm this long as I'm babbling on. Cardinal puts out this record, Caribbean-inspired hip-hop record, and it falls flat. No one gives a shit because no one in Toronto, you know, the, the, the white trust fund kids going to University of Toronto, they're not going to embrace it. They don't understand it, right? And unless it does well in New York or in the States, it's not going to get over. You know, people in Regina, Saskatchewan aren't bumping the new Cardi record. It's just not going to happen. You know, and Cardi has to go and make records with Akon to get over, which he eventually does. Um, so Toronto was a weird scene. There was a lot of true school stuff going on, but everyone was falling over themselves to try to figure it out and no one was getting anywhere. Um, and it was a frustrating time. And I was, when I came back here, it was really funny because I went to school and none of the guys that were doing hip hop music understood what I was doing because they weren't exposed. The Toronto hip-hop cats they didn't know what was going on in halifax they didn't get it the art rap stuff like you're not going to have some hood dude from mississauga bumping josh martinez it's not going to happen um so real identity crisis and 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 you know drake hadn't happened yet and you know we, we can talk about drake forever he transformed the city he transformed the industry he really did there wasn't me as an engineer you couldn't walk into a studio that was doing hit hip-hop records or hit r&b records there was nowhere to expose yourself to that there was nowhere to see it there was nowhere to learn from it there was no infrastructure for it so drake happens drake 40 t minus uh boy wanda who's a, who's a friend like those guys transform the industry and transform the city um and people don't talk about it like it's a toronto sound but it, it because it skipped all the steps and this is the last thing i'll say about it is like here's the thing about drake we weren't going to underground clubs to see Drake perform. That never happened, right? He skipped all the steps, right? There's no roots. We don't talk about, you know, uh, we don't talk about 40 having created a sound the same way we talk about Dillick. Or, you know, we talk about Detroit sound. We know what we mean. We talk about, when we talk about, uh, you know, Atlanta or uh, Houston, we know the sound of Houston. We know the sound of New York hip hop, right? We know what that means. And that was because it was a grassroots movement of sound that was coming up. Toronto never had that. It just skipped the steps and destroyed the industry. And so the classic example of this is like when Drake goes on tour for the first time, like his third show, he trips over a monitor and breaks his ankle. And it's like, well, of course he's doing it. He's, he'd never been on stage. You know what I mean? Like he basically just jumped. There was no grassroots movement for it, right? And Toronto was like this. This is the unfortunate thing about Toronto. Toronto spent so much time trying to be like New York, it didn't. It skipped all the steps of trying to be itself, right? Which is the tragedy of Cardi Cardinal putting out a, a Caribbean-inspired hip-hop record and nobody liking it, right? And and Drake accurately assessing this problem and saying, "Well, fuck it, you know, I'm going to go straight to the fucking top with it because fuck all this other bullshit." Um, and so, but that creates this weird, it's this weird city, it, like Toronto just basically went straight to gentrification. There weren't, there weren't any fucking cool neighborhood vibe shit going on. It's, it, it, there's no grassroots movement here. We skipped straight. We went right to entrenched New York fucking industry shit, you know? Um, and so that's kind of a shitty, like, unfortunate thing about Toronto coming up the way that it did. Um, and we were fighting that. And when I started to make records, and again, I'm babbling on here. When I started to make records in 2003, it was a nightmare. I mean, 
the early 2000s, not only did you see there were nothing going on in Toronto, but you had the only platinum hip-hop record of that one year, I think it was 2005 or something, was the Carter Three. You went from like you went from 18 platinum hip-hop records to 10 to 5 to 3 to 1 to none. There were no platinum hip-hop records at all until Hey Ya, which is not even a hip-hop record, right? And they figure out that if they sell twelve, if they sell sing, if they sell it as a single, and Apple Music, you sell six singles, it counts as an album. They can fucking get platinum because they sell twelve million. So that's the the, the scene. When I come up in the early two thousands, the industry is fucked. Five majors become four. Everybody loses their job. You're only as good as your last hit record. There are no hit records. There are no sales, and you've got publishing houses that take over the industry because the only the only place that these these guys are making any money is on the publishing side. And rats on a sinking ship, they jump to another ship. They're still fucking rats. It was a terrible time in the industry to come up. A terrible time to make music. Toronto was a. Uh, a fucking cannibalistic, ravenous, ridiculous identity crisis, fucking terrible place to come up. Um, and I have a lot of cynicism about it, as you can tell, um, because trying to be a professional engineer, getting shit kicked around the city, underpaid, disrespected. I mean, I, I've been in session, like I was doing sessions with Destiny's Child. I did sessions with fucking um, Fabulous, uh, sessions with like, I was doing all this shit but like I couldn't get paid or like I was getting, you know, like, so it was a ridiculous time and culturally strange, culturally very weird. Yeah. That tech, once again, going back to technology that it was, you know, I, I started making music probably like 2009, but I start, it, it was that whole, you know, from when you started to a little after I started that transition from physical medium to, to streaming yeah. And that whole, like, what the fuck did the, you know, just the record industry's fumbling Upheaval. the transition, you know, yeah. in, chaos, in, in all of it. Chaos. And so, yeah, when I came up, I was like, all right, we're going to make CDs and stuff and like that. And, and by the time my first album came out, it was like, no one wanted a CD anymore. You know, it was like, everyone is yeah. using iPods and, you know, it was just like the, it had shifted in like six months. Yeah. And then I had all these CDs yeah. and then, you know, you're still like, it takes you a while to be like, okay, maybe I shouldn't press as many copies, you know, and then. I actually still have copies of my first mixtape that I'm about to go throw away. Yeah. Um, just because it's horrible. It is a really bad production. <laughs> it's all beats that are, you know, it's, it's your um, classic hip hop mixtape where it's just like, Oh, let's take a bunch of dope shit. And you know, yeah. there are other people's beats. So it's got, you know, Dilla production. The mixtape era. Yeah. The mixtape era was a big deal. Big yeah. Deal. And it's, it was always really funny when you'd hear like for, for me and I go back and listen to it and it's like, some of those beats are like classic songs. And it's like the whole point of the mixtape era was like rappers who are really talented that could kill the beat harder than the person who actually rapped on it in the first place. Right. Yeah. So you had like those battle rappers that were taking these mainstream beats and just, you know, just punch lines over them. Like I remember hearing yeah. a crooked eye mixtape and I was just like, this is one of the dopest things I've ever heard. And it was just crooked. eye just, going to fucking town over mainstream shit and you're just like yes. this is hard and you'd way rather listen now? to him do it yeah right yeah. Yeah. well or like you know papoose was like the the mixtape yep. star for a while and yep. he was yep. so dope and then he doesn't go anywhere because his whole career is mixtapes and he doesn't actually put anything out is little wayne like the only one that trained like did the mixtape thing and 
and and put it into his actual career, like kept the the momentum going. Crooked I tried to with the whole uh the you know sliding with signing with uh shady records and doing the was it Slaughterhouse. Slaughterhouse there yeah. I mean I I think Slaughterhouse records are mad underrated. I mean those those records are fucking awesome. And like also if you think about when they were doing those records, they were really the one of the last bastions of like kind of I don't know, like I don't. It's not boom bap necessarily, but it's like true school mentality, punchline writing. Like they were the last bastion of that in a lot of ways, and and then they were hated. People people didn't dig them, and you're like people want to bitch about stuff going on, and they're not going to support Slaughterhouse. Never made sense to me. It came out at the wrong time. Like if it came out now, I feel like well, it would probably do better. Yeah, that's true. But with, with the I resent the movement. fact that it didn't do well because people bitched about how the industry was so shitty, and yet you're not going to support the acts that are actually that are actually doing shit in the vein that you purport to say you want to, you know, support or be about and stuff. Things have been always, things are always weird like that. I mean, Who Kid didn't really survive. I mean, the guy made so much fucking money selling mixtapes out of his trunk, millions of copies. I, this is one of my favorite things with the Dipset movement that came out of that, which was the argument about record sales were like 50, you know, 50 was being like, y'all ain't selling nothing. And it's like, okay. Yeah. Like I guess selling 350,000 copies is like a flop, except that I'm selling 350,000 copies and I'm making $7 a record. You're selling 2 million copies and making 35 cents. Like I still win. Like I still like, you know what I mean? Like, which, which I, you know, it's funny. People don't credit Dipset with the kind of independent, they were more independent. I think you do credit them with that, but like what they did legit was incredible in the sense of like the, the movement to be independent. Um, they were the proof, right? Like they were the, they were the proof that it could happen and they took over. Um, but survivability is, is weird. There's something about hip hop too. Like, um, from having worked with cats from that era and having met, you know, like different people that you know whether it's wu-tang guys or like like i was k-cuts engineer uh, k-cut of the main source for a lot of years that, that was my that's how i started um and the thing about him and the thing about that i anybody you meet that is from that era they're like baseball players in terms of their superstitiousness where they literally are cryogenically frozen uh at the moment that they hit it big right they're cryogenically frozen in that time frame. So like the whole joke about, you remember like uh Ghostface's top 10 softest rappers in the game. Remember those lists? Yeah. Well, obviously they weren't written by him. Um, and also, well, and they couldn't have been because literally to this day, I doubt that Ghostface knows how to like look at or open or write an email. Like that's the, that was the joke about it. That was the inside joke about it is that none of the Wu-Tang guys even had an email address. Like Raekwon, didn't know what a fucking blog was. Like you couldn't explain it to those guys. Like those guys are literally cryogenically frozen from when they're 18. They're fucking in their fifties now. And they're literally ask anybody that's been around those guys on tour or whatever. They, they act like they're fucking 18 because they're frozen in time from the moment that they, that they made it big. And in some ways you kind of understand it because that was their happy place. And it's like, like, it's like a pitcher in baseball. If like, if they throw a shutout, Whatever underwear they were wearing that day, they're going to keep wearing that underwear. It doesn't matter how dirty it is. Talking about that frozen in time mindset, it actually, you know, to take it to a little bit of a darker place, but like Michael Jackson, right? You know, he can't, he, he got famous when he was like five years old. 
Yeah. And there's so much uh, culturally yeah, there's, so, there's so much arrested development that was yeah. in his uh in his persona. Yeah. And you know, once again, not trying to justify anything that he he did action-wise, but you can't help but empathize somewhat because he his entire childhood, his entire life was removed from him. He didn't really have a choice. Yeah. And you know, mental health and all that stuff, you know, we didn't know enough about things you know it's like could michael have reversed all of the damage that was done to him with cognitive behavioral therapy and an actual <laughs> you know therapy but like that's a good question but you know can you change ted bundy can you change jeffrey dahmer can you change you know like the, the, it is very it's, it's an interesting concept and it's one actually that i float around in in psychology a lot because cognitive behavioral therapy can solve like a lot of issues that were sure. previously thought of as unsolvable. I think that the, the the one thing about that though is the money is insulating to such a insane degree at his level, and you see mm -hmm. this happen even on small levels. You see you see it happen where uh, success changes somebody, and all their friends become you know their enemies or whatever, and you you self isolate because of yeah. that to protect yourself like physically yeah. and you know. So it's the, yeah, the insulation of success is very bizarre and plays out in a lot of ways. It makes it a lot harder to reach anyone. And yeah, in the moment, you know, for a lot of these people, you know, you get famous, and then all of a sudden, everyone comes out of the woodwork. All your elementary school yeah. friends and all these things, and they're all asking for money. Hey, hook me up. You know, blah blah blah. Yeah. And then there's also the, the 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 people trying to rob you. You know, people trying to take shit from you sure. and stuff like that. So going, you know, it's there are so many like fame is such a it does so much fucked up shit too the human brain right mm. and so that's why my whole thing is like the model for fame like if you want to get famous do the daft punk thing right they put on a helmet and they could stand in front of a million people and everyone is going to go fucking crazy right take off the helmet they could walk down every street in the united states and no one would yeah. recognize them right and like that is ideal fame right that is like you can bring joy to people but you can also go get yourself a starbucks yeah, or, or, there's or, also there's also the thing about fame where, um, and it, and again, it happens on small levels and large levels too. And I don't know, did you ever meet Matt Dukes? Did, did we ever come by, come through? Did I ever come through with Matt Dukes? No, maybe not. I don't think so. When you tour, when I met you, when you were on tour, it was with Prem Rock and Canyons. And right. So, so the thing about the other thing about fame, it's not just fame, but like, there's the myth versus the reality, right? So, and and this happened to me a lot because despite the fact that in the States, whatever, like whatever I am in the States in Canada, like I have Grammy nominations in Canada. Like I'm nationally recognized here. I'm not like a famous dude. I don't get recognized on the street, but like I had my 15 minutes, like I'm in the history, Canadian history books, whatever you want to call it. The thing about that is that in Canada, what the fuck does that mean? Like, am I loaded? Like I'm, I've been fucking broke my whole life. What would happen is people impose these ideas of what they think is going on. Like the, everyone thinks you're successful. Everybody thinks you have money. Everybody thinks this stuff. And in reality, the reality is very different. Now, the thing is, the other thing that's fucked up about it is you can leverage, like I, I, knew, I knew how to leverage people's perceptions of me into actual money, into substance. Like I'm going to come back from tour. I'm going to raise all my rates because I'm motherfucking famous now, bitch. Yeah. And it's like, so you, you learn how to like leverage the smoke into, you know, into reality, into substance. But there's a danger there because if the further those two things are disparate, the harder it is to maintain mentally. And this is, of course, in your when you're talking about fame and success on on the level that you're talking about, it's it's way way worse. 
because your life can be falling apart and you have everything you've ever been given in your whole, like you have more money than you could ever dream of and your personal life is a fucking tatters. And what the hell do you do with that? Um, because, and again, the further those things are disparate, the harder it is to maintain mentally. And I, I used to get like, I remember I lost it on this kid. Uh, he was a, I'm not a mentor to him, but like he looked up to me and he was coming in town and he was, he had tickets to mob deep. He invited me and we, we went and hung out and stuff. And he was like, he was like, I want to be where you are. Like he was like, I want to be, I want to do what you're doing. I want to be where you are. And I fucking, I lost it on this poor kid because my life at the time I was, was falling apart. I was totally broke. My, my girl, I was in love with this girl. It totally fucked me over. And I was like, I was on the road and I was, I just, I was, I was a fucking mess. And this kid's like, I want to be you. And I was just like, kid, you're fucked if you want to be me. Like, no, you don't. Right. And I totally lost it on this poor kid. Um, and I've seen this play out in a lot of ways where expectations versus reality, like you've got to meter those things because if you overrepresent, or if you don't maintain, like if Andrew Kilgore isn't okay, but Fresh Kill is doing really well, it's going to fall apart. Like you've got to keep them as, they're never going to be congruently. They're not going to be on the same page ever, but you got to keep them as close together as possible because the, again, the further they are different. And I watched this happen with Mad Dukes in a way that I've never seen at a front row seat to one of the most tragic collapses of a human spirit that you want whatever you want to call it mad duke i watched it happen to him i held him in my arms in vienna as he was like uncontrollably weeping about how like we were on tour in europe everyone in buffalo thinks he's fucking famous his baby mamas are like where's the money where's the money where's the money his parents are ashamed of him because he's got all these baby he's got all these kids from different women and everyone thinks he's on top of the world his personal life's in fucking tatters and I'm holding him and he's barely, he was barely keeping it together, man. He literally disintegrated as a human being. And it was one of the most painful things I've ever seen. Um, and I couldn't help him. That was the even worst part is like, I couldn't, there wasn't anything I could do. I mean, I, I didn't have the money to give him. I, I would have given him the money if he needed it. I didn't have it. Like, there was nothing. We just had to maintain the fucking illusion of it all in hopes that like, you know, like at least if like the success, like at least it maybe brings the bottom up a little bit, you know, like, Maybe we can get these things closer together, but they were like this for him and growing. Um, and so that's the other aspect of what you were talking about. That's why I went on that rant was, you know, the fame is this thing, but that's part of it is like when the reality and the myth are so disparate, you're fucked. You're just fucked. Yeah. So in, in, in making the two personas, you know, if Andrew Kilgore chases fresh kills too much, he neglects Andrew Kilgore. And the fact is that Fresh Kills doesn't exist without Andrew Kilgore. And we, you know, right. we, we, yeah. we lose that, um, you know, it, it's just really easy in this culture, in, in, in these cultures, I guess, Canadian, American, the, the entire world, really, to just ignore your body right now. You know, with social media and stuff, it is so easy to, like, literally not listen to anything that your body or your mind is trying to tell you. Because when yeah. we have these moments, you know, the whole point of meditation and everything is you, you listen to what your what is what your body what you are really trying to tell yourself yeah because yeah you know a lot of what how we learn is having conversations with ourselves mm. and, and you know and being able to listen to like you know some people say conversations with ourselves some people say conversations with god some people say conversations with the universe yeah you have to like slow down periodically and 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 just breathe meditate whatever it is you know because otherwise the neglect will yeah it catches up. You're like uh, you're like in that scene in Black Sheep 
uh, with Tommy, with, uh, with Chris Farley, you know, where he like is trying to help out the old lady and the old man put their groceries away and he slams their trunk down, gets his fucking uh, tie caught and he's just getting dragged by the car. You know, it's just like, eventually you're trying to set up your career to move forward and everything, neglecting yourself and then you get caught and just fucking get dragged, you know, like through the parking lot with it. <laughs> it's funny too, cause, and I think I've got a credit it's probably really good that I never blew up because I probably wouldn't be doing it still. Like I, I would have, it would have fallen apart or something. And I got to credit the isolation of Canada because like as hard as it was to like come to the United States and have no one give a flying fuck, that's humbling. And I needed that shit. You know, I'm vain. I'm fucking vain, man. Like I'm totally vain. And I think I have to credit. I have to, I have to credit coming to the States and nobody giving a goddamn shit about me and having to like rebuild it all uh, and just fight the machine of it all to, to like, you know, keep you, keep you kind of humble, keep you sort of in it. And, you know, I think there's another thing, like you're, you're talking about your podcast. I've had two different podcasts that I have abandoned at whatever point, uh, two failed podcasts, I would say. They both had momentum. They were both doing pretty good. And I, I saw it as a future in the sense of like, I'm, you know, I gift a gab, whatever. I could be entertaining on a mic and talking and stuff. Um, but it's the consistency. You know what I mean? It's like, it's like, how are you going to maintain it, right? If, if the highs are really high and the lows are really low, it's harder for you to maintain a consistency of anything in your life, let alone a podcast or like, you know, meals or doing laundry on a regular basis, whatever the fuck it is. Um, so there's something to it. There's something to like, you know, and we often talk about those guys, you know, we love it when we hear an artist that like didn't change, like fame didn't change him, you know, like he's still cool or she's still cool. Um, we love those people. And, um, but yeah, but maintaining that consistency is, is definitely, there's like, a, there's a foundation there that you've got to be, you know, like you've got to build your own persona and like, you've got to build a foundation of your person. So, I mean, it's funny. It's like, I have a dog and a girl now. My girl moved in you know, I'm fully like domesticated. And I, if I hadn't been domesticated, like the, the pandemic was dark, man. I was, I live alone in my apartment. My aunt nearly died like third month in, like it was a fucking dark, dark time. I don't know. I would be done, man. I, I, and I was on the verge of get, taking real estate courses like, years ago. I've wanted to quit a few times, got talked, talked off the ledge, you know? So the, the thing for you is you got to keep doing this podcast again, consistently no matter how you feel about it, you've got to do it consistently for like five years. Yeah, at least, at least. And year four is going to suck. Year four is going to be like, fuck, what am I? You're going to have the what the fuck am I doing moments all the time. I mean, yes, I will. I definitely know that I will. And just in the sense that like I'm learning so much, you know, the first couple episodes took like fucking 12 hours of work per episode. And, you know, I'm getting more streamlined and I'm understanding you know, yeah. how to work all this a good amount better, but yeah, I mean, even now I'm still like with all the frustration, I'm still having moments where I'm like, Oh, this, this could be regardless of like a career in the sense of like a professional career, like in making money that is like this, I could yeah. do this. Right. Because just in reaching out to people, uh, interviewing people, like I, I enjoy conversing with people that know more and, or have a different perspective than me. So it's just like, I respect this conversation with you because you know, regardless of, you know, how famous or, or not famous you got, your musical product was always something that has been inspiring to me, right? Mm. So, like, the first time I heard it, I was like, this shit's tight, right? And that's all that matters to me is just, like, um, 
you know, is it, does it sound good or not? Does it have the soul? Yeah. Does it have like creative integrity? Does it, you know, all these things. And, and so I am really enjoying just the ability to converse, learn from people like you, uh, learn from people like Yeti. And I, I'm going to be sponging in information, you know, and That's like, so cool. and, and trying to pass along information and it's going to be really fun. So as long as I, I keep that in mind, because like I said, going with that duality of like me not understanding what I really want. Do I want uh, notoriety? Do I, do I want to sink into nothingness? You know, like with that whole duality, it, you know, at least I have uh, I don't know, this ability to learn from people and stuff like that and, and, yeah. and pass along information. Cause you know, I had a whole uh, moment where, you know, going back to the pandemic and how shitty that was, you know, I'd worked in kitchens for 15 years, you know, with a little bit of time off and on. Yeah um trying to do music the whole time right so i was like trying to be a musician and and kitchens were just money and then i moved to portland uh i had a studio internship that fell through uh i kind of got depressed and just stopped making music because i was living by myself and i realized that i'm an extrovert in the sense that like i make my my best music when i'm with other people mm. and so i came down here and, and just kind of threw all that away and, or or it it flew away from me so i jumped back into kitchens and kind of tried to start taking it seriously you know uh decided to sue chef eventually you know was running like multiple restaurants starting restaurants and stuff like that pandemic hit dummies that whole industry right away yeah exactly it literally you know it it, it chops everything off and it's just like now you have no legs okay so now you get to you know go run this marathon right and so I lost, you know, a good amount of my wage. And then I had a buddy who was working in the same space for a different restaurant, but like in a, in a community kitchen and he passed away. He got COVID and died like almost immediately. Fuck. And so I had this whole, you know, it was just like, if I die tomorrow, if I were to get COVID, like, is this what, it, am I happy with what I've done? Right. And I was like, I hate cooking for people. And I just had all these recollections and stuff. And so it's been, wow. it's been a, a, you know, a dark, <laughs> dark and yet reflective time where I've just been like, what do I want to do? And so like, even now in putting out fucking five episodes of this podcast, if I were to die tomorrow, I'd be a lot happier yeah. than when I left the restaurant, right? Just by putting out a couple episodes, just by giving like people a little bit of information uh, or, or, or making them laugh just a little bit. Right. And uh -huh. it's like, that brings me so much more joy than fucking 15 years of being I mean, there's so many problems in the restaurant industry. It's like, it, it's really interesting because it's an industry where they, it is all about manipulation. It is all about if you work hard, they figure that out and they exploit it. Right. Yeah. Oh yeah. Like, and, and I can't remember. There's like a specific psychological term where a, a person cannot do the bare minimum. They like go above and beyond, but it's like oh, yeah. those type of people are sought out in the restaurant industry and they're exploited at all costs. You know what I mean? And so I learned that I am that person, right? I will, I will jump into something and I will literally like, uh, you know, in starting the restaurant in Portland, I was working 14, 16 hour days, like mm -hmm. six days a week. Right. Like I will push myself, not listening to my body. I will push myself till I literally collapse. And that literally happened. That's exploited in the restaurant industry. And I was like, well, if I want to, you know, like I need to find somewhere that that dedication, perseverance, work ethic is rewarded. You know what I mean? Yeah. And maybe that's working for myself. It's dangerous to your health too. I, there's a, I used to suffer from insomnia really bad. And there was a, there was a 
there would be a, there was a lecture show late night Toronto public access TV. And I stayed up one night and there was this doctor and he was, he was, he'd written a, th- a paper or whatever that had been published about, he was studying long-term illnesses. Um, terminal illnesses was his specialty. And he was one of the first doctors to kind of, to think about it from the point of view of, let me, let's do a demographic study of the types of, cause he kept seeing these patterns, different people and be like, you know, what are the correlations? Like what are the personality types maybe that are susceptible to uh, terminal illnesses? Um, and did, he did basically a study of all the, of, of all of his patients uh, and, and beyond. And what he found was that uh, predominantly women are susceptible to terminal illnesses. Uh, the and predominantly mothers uh, are susceptible to it. Uh, the men that are that 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 suffer from terminal illnesses, uh, almost all of them uh, have are their servicemen, their military firemen, uh, medical staff. Um, they are people, and, and and also mothers have the same thing. They have the sense of duty. They have this sense of the job is more important than than them, right? And definitely those are the type of people that you want as a firefighter, as a soldier, as a mother. Makes sense. Um, but those jobs and that sense of duty is, is often plays out as a detriment to themselves as people. As, as, um, and what he found was that, that there's, they're definitely susceptible to long-term illnesses and terminal illnesses because that's what we do. We, we continue, we push our bodies beyond and we don't listen to our bodies. And we're, you know, the job is more important. And I 100% suffer from this. Um, For me, it was all about being like, like, I was so desperate to be a professional because as a musician, you feel like it's a hobby. Everyone around you is a hobbyist. And like, how do I make this my profession? So it it had to become an absolute obsession. And it did. It became an obsession of mine. How do I make this a sustainable business practice, right? And so I was uh, just over the top, took myself too seriously. I would work 16 hour days. I did that to myself. I did the 16 hour day thing. When my life changed, I got the, I had the two Canadian Grammy nominations, the Juno nominations. I won a battle and my life changed. And instead of like taking a break and my manager was like, charge more money and get rid of all the clients. Do, do get more money for less work. The opposite happened. I got, I did more work for more money. And I did that for seven months and I had a nervous breakdown. I had a full out complete mental and physical breakdown. I was crying. I, my, my back, I threw my back out. I never throw my back out. My back's fine. Like it was completely unbelievable. I've never seen it. Like it was just, I couldn't get in a car. Couldn't wipe my own ass. Like I was, I was an invalid. I had completely destroyed myself. And, and it's, and, and, and like you're saying, I'm sure it, it makes total sense. Um, what you're talking about, those you definitely seek those people out as a. You need those people in your company. You want those people that are going to break their fucking backs for you. That's what it is. You're I'm a worker. Be the same way. Um, but like, and we we keep going back to this topic where it's like you got to Andrew. Like Fresh Kills is a superhero. He'll he'll go. Like he'll fucking he'll drive through the night to play a, a show in Houston. You know he'll without on no money, no sleep, no food. But Andrew Kilgore's got to get taken care of, and so the self care thing. You know, and I mean, we live in a great time where like mental health is like a topic of discussion and like there's infrastructure being built to like service it and we have a better understanding of what it means. And, um, you know, when we're going to get better, you know, 
I, again, when I came, I, I, I can't believe some of the stuff like that I came up, the toxicity and the ridiculousness that I went through in the early 2000s in the industry that just the, like I got, dude, I got assaulted. I got strangled in a chair by my boss in front of clients in February of that year. And they were, they were, it was a reverse lynching. And they were talking about how they were going to lynch the white guy. It was like reparations during Black History Month. They were making jokes and they strangled me in a chair and tied it off. Um, and this is what I subjected, this is what I subjected myself to because of my sense of duty because I was a sound engineer in a million dollar studio and that was more important than anything. I was going to subject myself to this level of abuse. And I did. And it was like fucking insane. And like, you know, nowadays that might never happen. You'd like to think that would never happen. But, um, you know, I, I marvel at like, I'm so, and just to, to get on a positive note, last thing I'll say about it is I'm so encouraged. I work with young people today and like, they're incredibly inspiring. They like, their hearts are in the right places. They have a firm understanding of who they are culturally, physically, mentally. Like they take care of each other. They fucking care about one another. Like there's a sense of community. There's a sense of like, like I did anti-oppression training for this, for this unity charity thing. That's transformative for me. Like that's fucking transformative for me. Like learning about microaggressions. Like this is a thing. These are, these are things that like, it would have been so helpful. And I wish I'd had them earlier than I had them. Like, thankfully I was, I was a conscious enough person and compassionate person anyway, but like we're coming up in an era that has this stuff and you know, everyone, we like to talk about how fucked up everything is They're The next generation are going to save, they're going to save us. They're going to save the fucking world. And I, I am so encouraged and inspired and happy about, you know, um, about where things are going. Like, I don't, I don't have like, I'm not pessimistic about it. I think, I think we're moving in the right direction where all these things that you're talking about, um, you know, the mental health thing, the, like, how do we find ourselves? Like, there's just so many more mechanisms to do that now. There's infrastructure behind it. There's funding behind some of this stuff. Um, you know, they've now, they're now connecting the dots on things like, you know, like, like it's been, for example, it's been proven that if you, if you, if you give women loans in third world countries, communities thrive, you know, that's a fucking fact, you know, like, uh, we are moving in wonderful, incredible directions. And I'm like, I'm, you know, because we, we talk pessimistic about all this stuff. Um, I'm encouraged and in, inspired every day uh, by the young people around me that have, that are, that know how to do some of this stuff that we never did growing up in the eighties. <laughs> I grew up in the eighties. Yeah. Well, I grew up in the nineties. So, I mean, eighties light. I don't know you could call it. Yeah. I mean, what's, yeah, I don't know. Eighties is weird. RoboCop really fucked me up. <laughs> there's this, uh, yeah, I found out there's a statue of RoboCop in Detroit. <laughs> <laughs> Do you know the guy that the director of that? It, the, I can't remember what his name. He's at a he's a Euro Euro European director. He's incredible. Um, and he the funniest guy. He did Total Recall. He's like the fuck. He's the best. He's so he's a caricature of of a Hollywood director, and he's so over the top and Paul ridiculous. Verho Verhaven. Paul Verhaven. Yeah, Verhaven. That's right. Verhaven. And he's uh, if you ever have a chance to this is ridiculous aside, but if you ever have the chance to watch these special features of the Total Recall DVD, his interviews are unfucking believable. Like 
they're he's <laughs> they're talking about how uh what are they talking about there's some incredible moments on that on that commentary dvd um career really went for a turn though i mean robocop total recall that he did basic instinct then he did yes. showgirls then start that starship troopers starship troopers is a fucking masterpiece Absolutely. i really like it selena said she wanted to what my girlfriend she said she i'm not sure if she said she walked out of it or wanted to walk out of it but she hates it i don't think she gets yes it. well yeah you hate it absolutely but you're supposed to hate it and it's based upon a, a book. It, it's actually like a, a, it was a book written by a science fiction writer who was a ridiculous right wing military first guy. Yeah. It's, it's over the top, like fascist fucking military, militaristic writing. But Vorhaven, like the, the movie is self-conscious of it, which is what's, what makes it so good. It's like it knows how fucking ridiculous it is. So that's why when if you can watch it with that. I, I had a my my friend uh and I he had this amazing take on No Country for Old Men. He's like he's like, I want to come over and watch that movie with you and we're gonna watch it as though it's a comedy. And it was the most fun I've ever had watching a fucking movie. And it's Starship Troopers the same thing. If if you can watch that movie with like the grain of salt that it needs, it's a fucking absolute masterpiece. And it's a con it is. It's a total comedy. Although the one thing about it that I do really here's a controversial take, here's a hot take, is the one thing about that movie that I really like, and the one thing about the, the 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 controversial politics of that movie is that I like is this idea that in order to vote, you need to be a citizen, and citizenship requires. I mean, in the case of the movie, being a soldier gets you citizenship. So what I really like about that is like his fucking rich ass dumb parents. They don't get to vote, right? Because they're not citizens. Now this makes perfect sense to me. If you're fucking rich and loaded and the political system has very little, if any, effect on your day-to-day -day life, right, then why the fuck should you get to vote? Like, why do you get to vote on social programs that you don't use, don't need, that, that don't affect you at all? It's like, it, it makes no fucking why, sense. Yeah, I don't understand why, you know, like we elect like octogenarians to be, <laughs> to, to run the country. And you're like, yeah, it's insane. you are going to die in 15 years like you have no you have nothing to care about nothing to care about. and talk about out of touch the most potentially out of touch demographic that you could have they're frozen right? in time like it's they're, you know 1953 exactly. cryogenic like oh i remember when i was a kid uh yeah um i, I jokingly said in one of the episodes that that racism is just nostalgia for a quote-unquote simpler time in the perspective of the racist right oh wow yeah right yeah and absolutely. so they're just like i remember when things were simpler and blah 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 and you know blacks and whites are separated and i didn't have to go to school and see you know blah blah, blah. And you're just like jesus christ you know what like I, when i first encountered that was my grandma who survived nazi occupation and russian occupation and if you were to ask her what she would prefer it, so long as you weren't jewish or a person of color or gay you're going to choose the germans all the time you're going to choose eight days out of, out of seven you're going to choose the germans because when the russians when the russians occupy you they show up to your house and they bust your door down and they they sexually assault your wife and they steal all your shit and they're drunk and dirty and fucked up this is of course ridiculous over the top the nazis they're going to come over and they're going to walk they're going to knock on your door politely they're going to walk in and they're going to expect you to make a meal for them but they're going to be polite 
and clean and they're going to be, you know, they're going to be nice enough. Whereas the Russians are just going to fuck everything. So, and hearing this from my grandmother, obviously the, 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 the anti-Semitism with, you know, with the, the anti-Semitism sort of backdrop to everything was like the most eye-opening thing. Cause it makes total sense that she would feel this way. Right. But it's super fucked up. And me being like me being a kid and understanding at, at the time, understanding the intricacies of that particular choice. Wow. You know what I mean? Like they were rooting for the fucking Nazis because the Russians were imperialist bastards, you know? So That's fuck. Like two evils. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, my grandma was like her friends, like, you know, if you said something bad about Stalin, uh, you'd, you're, you'd be, a, be a bag over your head and you'd get abducted. Like the fucking, the, the, the Gestapo would show up and you're in a, you know, you spend the rest of your life in a gooyag, you know? And if you don't, like, if you don't, like this whole concept of like not t- uh, telling on your, not, if you don't snitch, they would test people and be like, they would like somebody would, you know, there'd be an undercover agent that would say a bunch of bad shit about Stalin. And then they would send people to your door to be like, did this guy say something bad? And if you said, no, I don't think so. You'd go to the fucking gooyag because you didn't snitch fucking insane shit so my grandma's like give me the nazis they're like oh my grandma why yeah that's just one of those situations where like i don't want to choose and you know it it also it's this isn't a black and white thing it sucks that people are put into these situations where exactly yeah. they're presented only two options and it's you know the the um, you know uh, um, the american political system is i feel like kind of like that where it's like a, you have the republicans and the democrats and like Obviously, it's very hyperbolic to compare them to yeah. uh, the Nazi Germany and and you know uh, the USSR. Um, yeah. But the point is that they are both doing horrible things, and that now you have people fighting over which one of them is doing the less horrible, horrible. thing. Absolutely. Right. And so a lot of people are, you know, very pissed at Biden. You know. Um, or, or like, I guess from the right wing side, a lot of people are pointing at Biden or, or the left and saying, you know, why aren't you upset that he's doing these things? You know, you guys were pissed that Trump was doing this. Why aren't you pissed that he's doing it now? And, you know, Biden has actually been arguably worse than Trump when it comes to actual policy and things like that. I mean, a binary political system is, is absolutely ridiculous, um, because they're not beholden to, they're only beholden to another one other per, one other party or ideology, and it's just it's just a recipe for disaster, and it's a recipe for that exact thing. In Canada, we're not much better, but there there's five parties, there's five legit parties in the country, and you have what's called in our case, you have what's called a minority government, where Trudeau and the Liberals have, they don't have enough votes to just run the gamut. They can't just do whatever they want. They need, they don't have enough votes, so they have to convince a different party a different ideology in order to get anything done. I think that's, there's a check and balance to that, that I think is really important and I'm happy that we have it here. Um, But it plays out in some really, really horrible ways too, where people will vote for the liberals. So there's the liberals, which are your Democrats. There's the NDP party, which are the socialists, like the super left. Um, And then there's the conservatives and there's some other, there's a green party. And then there's the Bloc Québécois, which is the French party. And the thing about it is, what ends up happening is you'll vote liberal, even though you believe in the NDP, because let's face it, you know the NDP is gonna is gonna have the socialist policies that we 
you know, they're, they're, they're about, they're about supporting families. They're about healthcare infrastructure. They're about education. They're about grant funding. They're about, you know, these types of, they're about social programs. Um, you're going to vote for the liberals because if you vote for the NDP, it takes away votes from the liberals and then, then you're going to let the conservatives win. So that, that thing plays out in a different way, but it's the same problem. Right. It's that you're voting against you're, you're going to even vote vote against your weak. You're going to vote against your interests in order to that so that the worst thing doesn't happen. Right. So that's also flawed in another way. Um, and I think I think that's also but I think that also speaks to and you see this in a lot of politics on your side of things with Republicans and Democrats. They always say, oh, the Democrats can't get it together. Well, it's not the Democrats can't get it together. It's that the Democrats represent a really wider array of philosophies and actually a good point and then actually yeah it's a really good point that's why the democrats can't it's not they can't get it together it's that there's a lot of viewpoints encapsulated and that's why the binary system really sucks um but you know and the republicans are fucking you know they're tunnel vision trumpist weirdos but that's a lot easier that's a lot easier to market it's a lot easier to push it's a lot easier to you know it's easier to push less ideas right yeah, because in the Democratic side, you have, like you said, so many ideologies and so many backgrounds and things like that that you have to consider. Whereas, and the they're Republic- conflicting at times too. It's true. Yeah. yeah, and then people will point that out and be like, "Well, what are you doing here? You're being um, hypocritical." And then if you don't acknowledge the hypocrisy, then that's all bad. But yeah, it seems like the Republican strategy has been, you know, a lot more effective because it's all about a couple different ideas that are repeated over and over until it's cemented into people's brains that uh, consume things without critical thought. Yeah. You know, they also have the advantage of the self of, of pushing the self-fulfilling prophecy, which is in Canada it plays out this way where you have a conservative government that basically completely defunds and destroys institutions. And Trump did this very well, but you have the conservative government that we had for a number of years. They basically erode like CBC, for example, right? They erode the CBC, right? They defund it. They they put in people that are going to run it bad, and then it fails, and they point mm-hmm. to its failure as a as a justification for defunding it further. Yeah, and that yeah. that's a very easy, repeatable solution. And you see this happen all the time. You see this this happen down up and down the economic stratum, where you see like, well, you know, we're going to defund education, and then we're going to point to how bad our education system is. It's like it's a self-fulfilling prophecy that's easy to sell, but it's of course demented and ridiculous and evil as well. That was really, really strongly implemented with Reaganomics. Yeah. When Reagan came in and cause Reagan was this soulless face of the Republican party, right? He, I feel like even like Nixon and all of these people before Reagan kind of had their own personality where it's like mm-hmm. Reagan was an actor. He was playing a part it really started. That's when, like, a lot of, of of the defunding of a lot of institutions began, yeah. and when the Republican Party really started to turn into that nefarious, uh, self fulfilling prophecy, we're going to point out what we have been doing and blaming it on other people, type of thing. Yeah, yeah. So, what do you want to plug? Like, what do you want to promote? What do I want to plug? Oh man. Um. Well, I'm really currently what I'm really excited about is this Occam's Blazer project. Um, which is a collaboration between seven musicians from all over the place. Premrock, uh, Anthony uh, Rinaldi on sax from Toronto, 
Guido Spinochi, a saxophone player from London, England. Um, drummer, uh, uh, Julie's our drummer from Vienna, the keyboard player and the trumpet player also from Vienna. Uh, end, of, end of tour, we, we did this crazy record and we and it all live off the floor, these chiseled songs from this live on the floor thing. Um, I'm not describing it well, but basically we got into the studio at the end of this tour in, in, in 2019 and we did three days in the studio and it was so electric. It was such an insane, like we would do these jams and then we were looking around at each other going like, was that as good as you thought it was? Because that was one of the craziest things I've ever done. And we all were in agreement. And it, it was such a powerful session that they, they ended up flying over to Toronto um, in um, January of 2020. And we, and we did another huge session. And so it's called Occam's Blazer. It's a nomad jazz record. It, it is, it's, there's all these weird elements in there. There's a full horn section, heavy keyboard, drums. It's like, it's a total genre bending experience. And it's one of the most exciting things I've ever been involved with. And it's coming out on Fake Four. Uh, the single is Prison of Gold. Um, so definitely check all my socials. Yeah, the single's already out. Uh, Fake Four stepped in. Chesky at Fake Four stepped in to help us put it out. And, you know, we're super thankful about that. And um, our next single uh, is coming up at the beginning of next month. Uh, the album drops in April on Fake Four. So check out all my socials. Check out Occam's Blazer. And, uh, yeah, and take it in and let me know because it's a totally – it's completely off the grid it's a it's all live drum stuff it's a totally new challenge for me and an absolutely beautiful chaotic um you know uh, musical experience so i'm really excited about that if you don't mind i'd love to because i I was going to ask you if i could play one of your songs at the end of the interview rock prison of gold man yeah yeah yeah, i'll put that on at the (laughs) end tell me what you think too because Maybe it's not as weird as I think it is. It's weird for me. It's outside the box. And it's like, it's, you, you're going to ex- understand what I mean when I say this, where I spent my whole life trying to make the, the perfect like peak rock beat or something. Yeah. And, and I'm doing this totally weird outside the box thing. And it's going to be the thing that, you know, does really well compared to everything else that I've slaved over. It's going to be, it's this weird, beautiful, beautifully chaotic thing. And I'm, I'm just really, I'm really excited to put it out because we're all, we were all just like, we hope everybody loves it as much as we do because we just love it. We just think it's bizarre and amazing. Everything at Fresh Kills, I'm, I'm on all the platforms as Fresh Kills, 1L. And, uh, and thanks so much for having me, man. I appreciate it. And, you know, good luck with the podcast stuff. I'd love to come back. Yeah, keep me posted, man. It's, thanks for having me. Yes. Yeah, thank you for, for, for coming through. And, and I'll stay in touch. Yeah. In this light, you resemble the good fight. Hand-to-hand combat or something to look like. Man. In this light, you resemble a lookalike. It's not you. It's not true. It's not me. Body gum and kitchen knife, that pigeon hold to the killer mean prison of gold. Lack to a grid. The future's unwritten, right? Still hanging out the differences. The more you put into it, the less that they listen in. I won't tell you what you already know. Bled through the moonlight, but only if it's position right. Getting what they're getting is good. Living is really living, right? Got a good deal on drapes with the sound grapes in this light. You resemble a damn flight. Back box, my journal recorded every sound bite. In this life, you only good is the one that you get right. So why can't we get it right? Sit tight. I sleep under the bridge now, I know what that's in like. Huh?